0: The reading this morning is from Judges chapter 3, verses 11 through 30. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kinez, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly." And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed by beyond the di- idols and escaped to Syria. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years.
1: You know, who are your heroes? All of us look up to somebody. All of us have somebody that we respect and admire. Who are they for you? Are they in the political realm? Are they in the military realm? Are they academic? I mean, who would you say is a hero to you? Maybe it's in the business world. Uh, in a room this size, with this many people, I'm sure there's all kinds of heroes uh, that we would have. Uh, and while there may be different heroes, the similarities or the, the characteristics that they have would probably be similar. Maybe they'd be strong, or maybe they'd be wise or, or beautiful. I mean, but the characteristics would be similar to one another. Uh, rarely is anyone's hero defined by weakness or insignificance or failure. Those aren't the type of heroes that we have, and that's what makes this story so interesting. Uh, Here we have this unlikely hero named Ehud that's described as a left-handed man. The story's meant to be told as kind of a satire. It's kind of humorous, these unexpected twists as the story was being read, you were kind of laughing to yourself. I, I warned you a few weeks back when we started this series that, you know, it's going to have some awkward moments. You know, here in our passage alone, we've got some potty humor, we've got some jokes on weight. It, it, it's meant to be that way. In a way, it's God mocking his enemies. Now, I wouldn't have chosen this text for Mother's Day, so I'm sorry for that, Ladies. Next week is Deborah, so I should have switched them. Uh, but I think it's good for us today uh, because it reveals to us the very grace of God. And, and here's how I think you're going to see that in the story. You're going to see that God actually, it, it shows us how God saves the people in affliction. Got, how God saves the people, how he redeems the people. Uh, let, me range, let me show show you how you know last week we looked at these stages of apostasy you know that when you forget about god's compassion and god's holiness and god's graciousness you forget about god's merciful judgment then that that's what moves you into apostasy it it moves you to wander away from the lord well our passage today shows us how to return to the lord The passage is showing how God redeems, how he restores, how he reclaims those who have wandered away. Now, all of us are subject to this. We're all subject to temptations to follow the little trinkets of this world and kind of wander away from God. We forget about God. We we move on. Some of us feel so far away that we just don't know, how do I get back to God? It's like the child that keeps kind of moving farther and farther away from his property, And things become less and less familiar. And then all of a sudden, before he knows it, he doesn't know how to get back home. This passage, following last week, is to show us this is how God brings us home. This is how God redeems, reclaims, and restores us. There's four ways he does it. Just like there are four ways of stepping into apostasy. So now there are four ways of finding home again. That would be understanding that God brings discipline to us. He brings trials into our life to wake us up. Secondly, that he hears our cries, even the cries of those people who perhaps have mixed motivations. Uh, Then thirdly, God delivers us. God will bring a savior to bear. And then fourth, uh, God will lead us to a place of rest. So those are the four kind of categories of how God leads us back from apostasy into adoration. So first, God disciplines us with trials to wake us up. Now, I don't mean to draw a one-to-one relationship that every trial you have is related to every sin that you may commit. I'm giving you a principle here uh, that, that God will use discipline because he's a gracious and a jealous God. He will use discipline in the life of his children, just like the mothers here now. You know, when you discipline your children, you're not doing it, at least when we discipline properly, that we're not doing it just to vent our frustration. We don't want children to continue moving in a direction that will be ultimately self destructive. And so you move with discipline. It's born out of love. And this is what we see with God. Look with me at 11 to 14. He says So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel the son of Kenaz died, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Aglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. There's a lot tucked in here right now that God is, notice how after Othniel died, that people began to wander into idolatry. It really does remind us, just as a throwaway, that leadership is important. Good, godly leadership is important. After each judge dies, as we've seen in the book, and as we will see in the book of Judges, that the people begin to wander. And that's what happened here. Atheniel is a good judge. He's the first judge. We're not going to cover him. We're jumping to Ehud because there's little detail about his his reign Um, But after he dies, the people begin to do, and it says again, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's this pattern that's beginning that we keep finding our way back into trouble. Now, what is this evil that they began to do again? Well, we learned back in chapter 2, and we see in chapter 3, verse 7, that the evil that they began to do was that they began to forget God and to pursue Baals and Ashtoreths. They moved from believing and walking before God, and they moved to, again, pursuing idolatry. Now, when I say they forgot God, I don't mean to say that they somehow lost all their cognitive memory of the characteristics of God. I'm not saying that their minds went blank, and they don't know about God anymore. Uh, in, in Scripture, forgetting God is where your mind may think one thing, but your life displays another thing. In other words, you may hold to the truths of the Scriptures, but then your life isn't being governed or controlled or directed by it. So in other words, what you believe is not really in accordance with how you behave. And the farther that gap becomes and grows, this would indicate that you're forgetting God. It's not that you don't know about him, but you don't know him. It's like the man who knows how to get in shape. You've got to exercise and eat right, but he doesn't run and he just wants to eat donuts every day. He believes that he's going to get in shape this way, but he doesn't do anything about it. And what we say is you really have forgotten what it all means. You may cognitively understand, but you don't really know. You don't know at all. Now, notice that they forgot about God, and then it says, and they pursued Baals. It's always that way. You don't forget about God in a vacuum. Okay, I don't believe in anything now. Everybody either pursues God or pursues whatever's before them. We're all worshipers. We all long for, are passionate about something. And if it's not going to be God, it's going to be the shiny trinkets that we have in this land. It's going to be something. It may be security, significance. It may be popularity. It may be success. But you will go after something. Even if you sit here and you don't believe in God, you are a worshiper. Let me remind you, you are worshiping something. It may be your career. It may be some experience that you want to have. It may be a relationship that you hope to develop. You will pursue passionately. You will give yourself to something or someone. And that's all worship is. And that's what they did. They forgot about God and they went after the gods that we talked about last week. So what does God do? Well, God loves us. God loves his children. He's not going to let them go. So he moves and notice what it says. It says, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. This is the Lord strengthening the enemies of his own people. And that word "strengthened" means to harden. He hardened Eglon, kind of like God hardened Pharaoh. And Pharaoh began to move in ways according to God's purposes for his glory and ultimately the good. That's what we see here. God is moving Eglon to oppress his own people. The sad irony about this is that Jericho was the first place where God's people experienced victory over God's enemies. And now it's the place where God's enemies experience victory over God's people. It's to break our hearts. It's to sadden us. It's incredible. It breaks your heart that Moab, this king of Moab, Eglon, and he gathered around with him the Ammonites and the Amalekites. They are distant relatives by the way of Israel. They gather together and they oppress Israel. Why? Because they did what was evil in the sight of God. God is using them to chastise his own children. And they did. They brought in military rule. They exacted tribute. They drove Israel to poverty by taking all the wealth. They grew, they grew wealthy and comfortable off of Israel. And, and this was a seriously, you know, they had military rule. People were in fear of their life. So we don't know anything like this. We don't know this kind of oppression. Mandating masks would not be equivalent to what they were going through. This was significant oppression. Now, so let's just stop here for a minute, because we see that God brings discipline into our lives to wake us up to our waywardness. Why? Because God is not indifferent to sin. God does chastise our sin. He does. He disciplines those whom he loves. And This isn't just simply, well, the consequences of bad decisions. It's more than that. I want you to see that God is actively involved. He is pursuing us that we might again pursue him. It's out of his kindness. Now, Eglon doesn't know this. He's not moving. He's not, he may or may not know. I don't know what degree he knew that he was being used as an instrument of God. But you see both things happen. There's a silver line in here. That even as we experience difficulty and hardship, that God is sovereign over those things. One author said it this way. He says, basic to the Bible is the idea that God is sovereign. For every real set of human actions, at least two sets of motives are involved. A human set, because we are responsible and freely choosing what we we most desire, and a divine set, because God is reigning over all things. So while mysterious, God's sovereignty extends even over malicious human actions. So when we are struggling, we're facing trials and hardships. It may may be a, a difficult boss, it may be a health crisis. It may be an embittered relationship. Uh, We can rest that God is still sovereignly controlling those things. Uh, Cancer and bad bosses and bad, they're not sovereign. Nothing, only God is sovereign. And he is using these things to wake us up. This is C.S. Lewis's, pain is the megaphone of God. Pain will often wake us up to where we are, how far we've strayed. This is a, a good thing that God has done. Uh, But why does he do it? Why does he want to wake us up? Well, I think he wants to show us that the nature of our trial and many of the struggles that we face are not caused by other people, but they're caused within us by our own idolatry, by our own forgetting of God. Many of our struggles are that way. Again, I'm not trying to draw a one-to-one relationship. I'm showing a principle here. You know, if you ask people today, what is wrong with our country? If you ask a Republican, they're going to say, a Democrat. If you ask a Democrat, what's wrong with our country? They're going to say a Republican. If you ask the Brits, what's wrong with Europe? Probably the Germans. If you ask the Germans, probably the Brits. If you ask the Indians, what's the problem with the Asia area? Well, it's probably the Pakistanis. We always tend to look outside of ourselves. That's the problem. And I think the scripture is calling us to look in the mirror, to start with ourselves when you are struggling and having difficulty, that we want to just take a minute and say, God, where are my allegiances? Where am I, you know, where am I with you? you know, I, I mentioned last week about kind of looking under the hood. Uh, times of trouble and difficulty can be very instructive for us. If we take a moment and take stock of life and ask ourselves, what am I loving right now? What am I pursuing? A- am I causing my own struggles by the idolatries? Am I enslaving myself in things? Just for maybe maybe it's for satisfaction, maybe it's for security, but my pursuit, my giving of myself to these things is causing and God is using that to cause me to have hardship and difficulty. Now this is sometimes hard to do. It's hard to see our blind spots. So if you have the courage, I would ask you to invite Perhaps a friend, a spouse who knows you and says, what do you see in me that I'm most passionate about? What do you see in me that I'm most fearful about? What do you see me giving myself to in large measure? And ask them. It may be a good identifier of some of the idolatries or some of the the pursuits that you have that are leading you away from God. Remember, God's chastising hand is to lead us back to himself. Now, it takes a measure of faith to believe that. But you have been given, if you're a parent here, or if you've seen loving parents, you have a clear example of how discipline is loving meant to leading back. So that's the first thing we see is that God will will chastise. He'll bring trials and hardships to wake us up. But notice what happens next. The next step of moving back towards God, we've wandered away, we're moving back towards God, would be that we begin to cry out in the stress. Look with me at 15. He says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. Now, what's this mean? Well, it means they're suffering. Are they crying out with a genuine repentance? Probably not. I don't know. The track record of these people in Judges is that it's not a genuine repentance. They're probably just suffering from the oppression that their own sins cause and they're crying out to God. And yet you find God listening to them. I mean, doesn't that amaze you? I mean, when, you, when a person comes to you repeatedly over something they've done wrong, you kind of have enough of it. You know, hey, change first and then come back. But God is seen as still listening to his people. That's what what a loving mother or father does. They, They listen. Even though they're suffering under the weight of their own decisions, they listen, and God listens. So when you're in distress, let's say you do take inventory of your life, and you do identify certain areas of loves that have been destructive to you, that you've fallen into, various forms of enslavement, whether it be with food or with alcohol or pornography you've worked yourself you've exercised your freedoms you've pursued your passions and now yourself you find yourself kind of in prison then cry out to God don't get angry at God and think why have you abandoned me and please don't disbelieve God and say well he must not exist because look at the jam I'm in And, and please don't just white knuckle it and just try to move through it cry out to God appeal to him for mercy Pray, God, God revive my heart. Revive my heart. Ask him. And if you're struggling and you've done that and you feel he hasn't answered you, then ask others to join with you. To join with you. Would you help me? I'm wavering in faith. Would you appeal to God with me? But don't just cry out to God. Turn to God in repentance. Really, that's what repentance is. Repentance is simply seeing that my ways have produced nothing fruitful, but it's just got me into a deeper hole. I realize that the reality of my sin is begun right here in my own soul. It's not the world's problems. They may do a pile on, but it begins with me and repent. Now, now for the non-Christian here, this is how you enter the Christian faith is you repent. You recognize I've been living my life as if I were king alone. I've sinned against the holiness of God. I am now repenting, I now see the error of my ways by your grace, and I turn, and by faith I trust that, God, you have provided a way for me, a Savior for me, and believing upon Jesus Christ, reconciling you to the Father. That's how we enter the Christian faith. That's what the Christian faith is about. It is about repentance and being reconciled. An author said it this way, he says, people who want a religion to merely affirm them will find Christianity disappointing. Christianity is about repentance. Christianity is a religion for sinners. We hear other religions say what you must do to make things right. Well, Christianity reminds us that though we are made in the image of God, repentance is how we're reconciled. Repentance is how we return to God, return by faith with joy in God. Now, if you're a Christian here and you're in the midst of struggle, you're, you're having trouble and you're crying out to God, you don't have to repent. You've already repented. You've already trusted in God, but confess your sins. Come clean with God, declare to him, and I would encourage, declare to others with whom you know and are close to where you're struggling. Confess to him and ask God to revive your soul. You know, interesting prayer in Psalm 85, the psalmist prays this way. He says, restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. In other words, they're under the oppression, they're under the chastisement of God. And he's said, God, restore my soul, redeem me. He says, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? That's the way it feels, opposing God. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant to us your salvation. When you're in the midst of struggle and you have identified areas and pockets of idolatry, this is what I've pursued, this is the jam I'm in right now, then, then cry out to God. Thank God, trust him that he can use the circumstances, the difficult ones of your life, to refine and revive and restore and redeem you. So it's the first two steps as we, we see that the, the Lord chastises, he disciplines, and the Lord listens to us when we cry out. Well, notice when they cry out then, they do experience deliverance. Look with me back at 3.15. In 3.15 he says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehu, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, this is where the story gets a little saucy, let's just say. We, we have, they're crying out to God. Again, I don't know that they fully are understanding the beauty of God and the depth of their sin, but they cry out to God. They're under oppression. And so God has heard their cries, and like the gracious God that he is, he responds with a deliverer. It says, God raised up. A deliverer, Ehud. That word for deliverer, savior. God raises up his savior to save him. And the only thing we learn about Ehud is he's a left-handed man. Out of all the descriptors that we could have given about somebody, he's a left-handed man. And the irony, just one of the many ironies in this passage, he, of course, is a son of Benjamin or Benjamite, which means a son of a right hand. The son of my right hand is left-handed. You can figure that one out later. But But he's left-handed. Now, why left-handed? It's really a key part of the text. Now, when you think of Scripture, you generally hear about the right hand. You know, God saying, pleasure's at my right hand. He says to the Son, sit at my right hand. He says, I swear by my right hand. You know, in Scripture, the right hand is a place of prominence and power and position. It is even in our day. Left-handedness is seen as more of an oddity. In fact, when I was kind of preparing the sermon, I... um, I stuck my head on my office and I asked Mary, Mary Kino, you know our administrative assistant, and I said, um, can you just Google just a couple interesting facts about being right versus left-handed? And before the sentence was formed, it dawns on me, Mary's left-handed. So she comes out like a bolt of lightning and says, I don't need to Google that. She goes, the zippers are different, the scissors don't work, the binders don't work, you can't see what you're writing, desk. I mean, it was like a full-on bull rush. And I said, Mary, easy, easy. And she goes, and on top of all that, they're the most clever ones out of all of them. I don't know, gee, I won't ask her to do a Google search anytime soon. But the reason why the left hand, well, the interesting thing is the word actually means his right hand was bound. In other words, it was hindered. It was inoperative. It was unusable. Maybe it was diseased. Maybe it was paralyzed. Maybe it was just deformed. But he didn't have a functioning right hand. Now, right hand was everything, picking up a sword. He was left-handed, not by choice or by DNA, but, but his right hand didn't work. He was weak. He was looked down upon. God chooses an unlikely hero one who can't even hold a sword. He's a left-handed man in a right-handed world. But not just is that kind of an interesting twist, but then the way he saves is interesting. So he, probably because he was weak, was chosen to send this tribute to the king. A tribute was all the money that they were exacting out of Israel. And so Ehud goes to the king with this tribute, now, the only word that describes the king is another description. He was a very corpulent man. He's a very fat man. Now, I don't want us just to think, well, he just couldn't push away from the dinner table. There's something more going on here. He's fat because he's abused the people of God and exacting all their money. He's grown fat and arrogant and opulent over the wealth that has come from the people of God. He's a a target for God's judgment, is the way that we're to see him. The whole thing's sold as a satire. It's to cause us to giggle over how God can destroy his own enemies and save his people. Well, he didn't just bring a tribute of money from the people of God, but he brought an instrument of judgment from the people of God. A dagger, a double-edged dagger. Now, of course, it was attached to his right thigh, the last place anyone would check for any sort of security risk for the king. The tension is that when he goes to the king and pays a tribute, they're then sent away. He must not have had an opportunity to then strike at the king. So he thinks, I have a secret message for the king, he says, so as to get an audience with the king so that he can do the work that God has raised him up to do. And so he gets this audience with the king. Now, why would the king see him? Well, perhaps the king thought maybe there's an insurrection at play, and maybe he's going to offer me a bribe. But why would he see him alone? I think because the king had grown so arrogant and full of himself. He looks at Ehud. He can do nothing to me. He doesn't even have a right hand that functions. He's a weak man. And he is, in his weakness, I'm not even threatened. This is how we often, I think, approach life. You know, we size things up as to strength and weaknesses, and we often undervalue the strength of a weakness. That's what we do. And so he says, when the attendants are dismissed, he says, I have a word from God. That's what the Hebrew word means, a message. I have a word from God for you. And so this large man, who probably struggled to get out of his chair, comes towards Ehud with the bigger part of his girth before him, Ehud with his left hand, that weakness of Ehud, and he plunges this dagger into the belly of this king. Now the dagger probably did not have a cross piece. It wasn't like a handle with a cross piece. It's probably just a handle. It says it goes into his belly and... Again, the irony is the fat closes behind it. And then it says that bile comes out. Well, not actually bile, I'm trying to be discreet, but what did come out and its corresponding odor caused the attendants to think he was in the bathroom, which gave time for Ehud to escape. And notice it says he goes by the idols. He goes by that which caused the idolatry of Israel, which caused the oppression of it. He goes past the idols. He calls Israel to bear by blowing a shofar, calling the men of battle to bear arms. They then grab the fords or the passageways over the Jordan. Remember now, Moab was to the east. They had to cross the Jordan to get to their land. They grab the places of crossing of the Jordan and they slaughter. 10,000 Moabite soldiers. You notice the description again, even of of the Moabites. They were, it says, strong and able-bodied. Word for strong is stout, or it could be fat. They were fat off the prophets of God's people, like their king. And they all suffered the judgment. So Moab, this weak, despised, rejected, I did just carry the tribute. You couldn't fight in battle for us. You can take the tribute to him. He was used to defeat Moab. So what do we find here in this deliverance of God? Well, clearly God does deliver based upon grace. I mean, the people of Israel did not deserve it. They were not even fully aware of their sin. They weren't fully aware of the greatness of God. They didn't come with this full-throated repentance. They didn't come with this genuine, we've done all this wrong to you. They were probably mixed motivated is what they were. And yet God saves. It's the kindness of God that is drawing us to repentance. That's really the word for us in Romans 2, 4. I mentioned it last week. But in Romans, Paul says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God always moves first with kindness that we would see him and we would be drawn to him. This really applies to us right now. Do you recognize that God has not given you the just deserts of your behavior right now? If God were to weigh out all that could be measured against you, what shape would you be in? All of us would say, I don't want. I don't want the consequences of all that I have done. God has been kind to me. Every one of us in here, even right now, if your eyes are open to it, you ought to say, I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want that at all. And what would it mean? It means God's been kind to you. And the kindness that you now are seeing in God, that he hasn't doled out the just deserts of all your decisions and behaviors and choices and pursuits and idolatries, the fact that he hasn't done that, It isn't just to give him a pat on the back. It's he's displaying kindness to you that you would come to him in repentance. And I would ask you, even if you're here today and you're not a Christian, don't neglect the mercy of God. Do not fail to repent and go to him and recognize he's not some old man on a throne. He's a kind creator who has made you for himself. We have wandered far from him and he's drawing us back by a display of his kindness. Don't neglect the mercy of God. We see the grace of God. Even those of you who think you're so far away and you just could not go back to him, he knows your filth greater than you. And he has reserved so that you would see his kindness and his patience and his forbearance with you that you would come and repent and be reconciled. That's the kindness of God in salvation. Also, you see that God delivers in weakness. He chooses Ehud of all people this deformed messenger. He uses him to accomplish this great work. But we're going to see it in Deborah, her weakness. You're going to see it in Gideon. You're going to see it in Jephthah. You're going to see it in in Samson. All these judges are weak. God uses unsuitable men and women to accomplish his purposes. I mean, no headhunter would have chosen the 12 apostles to do what they did. I mean, maybe they would have chosen Judas. That's who they would have chosen. They wouldn't have chosen anyone else. God chooses the weak to do his bidding. I mean, we don't do that. That's not the way, you know, so as kids, we used to play football and baseball in the street all the time. And of course, we'd all 10 or 12 or 14 of us would be out there. And the two oldest and best players, they'd always become two captains. And then the captains would choose who they wanted on their team. It was always horrible. It was a moment of great anxiety that the girl next door wouldn't be chosen before you, or you wouldn't go last, but how did they choose? They didn't choose who's the weakest among you, who can't play. No, they choose the best, the strongest, the prettiest, the most effective. That's who gets chosen in that world, not God. God chooses the weak. It's incredible. I mean, how many times have you said, I can't do that, You've been asked to do something in ministry. You've been asked to do something. I can't do that. It's not my gifting. I'm not wired. The way you assess yourself is you look at yourself only by strengths. If you have the strength to be able to do something, then you might have the courage to do it. You don't look at yourself by deficit. God may actually be choosing you because of your deficits. Have you thought about that? That's what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. God chose who was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has a plan. He chose the weak to shame the strong. That's what we see right here. He chooses the weak. If you feel weak, you might actually just be the right person. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said, He chose me because of my weakness. Great missionary to China. I had a teacher in seminary who says, God doesn't call the fit. He fits those whom he calls. God's not looking at the gifts alone or your strengths alone. And if you have them, he gave them to you. So it's not that he doesn't know it. He wants to use our weaknesses to shame the strong. That's why Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians, he says he speaks about the thorn in his flesh and how it weakened him. And he prayed for it to be, to be delivered from it. And God said, no. And so then Paul, you know, it's interesting. Paul takes his experience, and he understands it theologically. He says, uh, God says no, and he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should leave me, that it should leave me, that is the thorn. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, not strength. In other words, Christ, Christ's grace has a beautiful platform through weakness, not through your own strengths. He said, so therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We run from our weaknesses. We hide our weaknesses. We cover our weaknesses. And yet here it seems to be a critical criteria in how God uses us. Can I I shape and change the way you think about your weaknesses? Can maybe next time you, you are asked to do something that you may feel weak and then say, yeah, by Christ's power, I'm happy to help. Yeah, by God's grace, I'd be happy to help. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to walk by faith that God will give me what I need to do uh, for what you've asked me to do. It's incredible, freeing, it's liberating, really, that your weaknesses might be an asset. Go figure. God's very counterintuitive that way. And that's the third thing we see about his salvation. His deliverance is often in counterintuitive ways. I mean, some of you may have been a little bit skittish. Maybe your moral sensibilities were per, perhaps offended at God using guile or deception or assassin. Many of us struggle this way. I do want you to see that, that Ehud is not moving on some personal revenge. He's not moving on some unofficial coup. It says God raised him up. And it says, God delivered the Moabites into their hands. God is using Ehud as an agent of divine judgment upon a wicked king. Now, if our moral sensibilities have been raised, we think, we say, well, you know, my theology doesn't afford a God like that. I would just encourage you to just take one step back from that. I think we've tended to domesticate God. And so we kind of set up a box through which he can work. And when he's outside that box, then you know what? I'm not sure about this, God. May I just call for humility and call for you to recognize that God does things in ways beyond our tracing out, beyond our full understanding. I'm not trying to give, I'm just simply trying to give God a big birth here. That he does things in a way that we won't understand. And we know that if you've lived more than 25 years, you know that things that you didn't understand, you now understand and you're thankful for it. But you didn't understand it at the time. And God will be doing things that we will at one point understand, but not now. But here's what it shows about God uh, God is not to be trifled with. You know, Dorothy Sayers was a great English essayist, she was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and she writes these words. She says, we may call that doctrine, speaking about the doctrine of God, she said, we may call it exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. God is not dull, and the way God works is not dull. It may be devastating, it may be exhilarating, but it will never be dull. He works outside of our paradigms. So we see here these three kind of steps back towards from wandering and moving back to worship, that is, that God chastises us, And secondly, we see that uh, that God hears our cries as we cry to him. I'm imploring you to cry out to him. And then he delivers us in gracious ways. Look at the last thing that leads us back. God, it says, leads us back to a rest. A rest. Look with me at verse 30. In verse 30, it says, So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Now, it's interesting here. Uh, The land had rest. In other words, they had peace. They had shalom. They had a sense of fullness. They worshiped God. Their culture was redeemed. They pushed the idols out. They began to walk as they ought to walk. It was, I imagine, a sweet time. It was probably a foretaste of what God had ultimately prepared for them. Why do I say that? Because it was only 80 years. The rest they got was temporal. It wasn't permanent. And the judges they had were flawed. They weren't perfect. So all of Judges is looking for, remember now, the land had rest. That's a huge theme in Hebrews. The rest that God has for his people. A shalom, a peace, to be reconciled to God, to be reconciled to one another. To enjoy harmony and fullness of life. That's what he intends for us. They had that, but for only 80 years. And then we're back at it again. And that's what we'll see. But it's all of these Judges... You're going to keep finding yourself leaning to want a different type of judge to come. A judge like us, but not. And the whole thing points, as I would argue, the whole Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the judge. Think about it. He was like them. He came in weakness. He was born in a stable. No fanfare. He was just no notoriety. He wasn't a person of privilege. Not anywhere close to royalty, at least in this worldly sense. That's Jesus like us, identifying with us in every way. And yet, here's the twist. Here's the irony. He's very different. Where they were flawed, he was not. Where they triumphed, he was defeated. Where they rode to victory, he went into death. You see, Jesus is actually more of an unlikely hero than Ehud was. Ehud points the way, uh, but he only points the way. He's not it. You see the incredible nature. The peace that Jesus has come to bring is through his own death. There is now reconciliation. You and I now have a sweet taste of the rest that is ours forever. We have been forgiven of God. We are now reconciled to God. Not one of those given to him, Jesus said, will be lost. There is nothing that will separate us from God, not life, not death. Not angels, not demons, not things present, not things to come, nor anything else, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That has been achieved for us because the perfect judge has come. This unlikely hero. The hero came into Jerusalem. They were given the fanfare. That didn't last a day. He's an unlikely hero. And that's the one that our hearts are longing for. Ehud is preparing us for Christ Christ. In just a simple way. And now Jesus is the judge. He's at the right hand of God. He will dash the nations to pieces like shards of pottery with his rod of iron. It is a day. But you know, for the Christian, for the Christian, we don't fear him as judge. Why? He has borne our judgment. He has reconciled us to God. He, in fact, has moved from our judge to being our advocate. In First John, he's our advocate. He's the one that appeals to the Father. Arise, my soul, arise. Throw off your guilty fears. He's the bleeding sacrifice. He's interceding for us. He's our advocate. This is the day to to kneel before Christ, to give your lives to him. Because he will come back as a judge. The sword of judgment will come out of his mouth on the final day. It's a day to... It's a day to reconcile in your mind. Where do you stand with this Jesus? He stands as a judge or does he stand as an advocate? That's for you to consider. It's a huge decision. You have no greater decision than that. But we do see that he's an unlikely hero and he is a great hero. He is a sweet hero, a gracious hero, and he is a successful hero. We will need no further heroes. He is our hero. Let's take a moment now and ask God, perhaps for for comfort from these words or perhaps for conviction. Now, pray for us in just a moment.